And when it happens, you better go after it because if you don't, <laughs> it, if you've ever had a cast, you know what it's like. If you don't go after the itch, it just overwhelms you. In any case, a uh, quick update for me. Uh, just let you know real quick. Tuesday, I'm going in for new CAT scans. And then next week, uh, I get the readings of the CAT scans. We'll find out where we're at. Um, don't know anything else at this point in time except that I do know that since the doctor has allowed me to take the, vet, the uh, neck brace off occasionally if I'm not doing anything, like if I'm eating dinner or something like that where I'm, I'm doing absolutely nothing that I could take it off. But I do know that if I'm not paying close attention and still pretending like it's on still, there are times I'll turn my head and when I do, it really hurts. Um, so what does that mean? I don't know. We'll find out after my next meeting. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion what that means, but uh, my suspicion is it means that, that, that the, because the bone is displaced really badly, that it's probably, when I turn my head, coming in contact with either my brain stem or it's coming in contact with a nerve somewhere. In either case, that I'm guessing, that I'm not in the medical world, but I'm guessing that probably means that I'm probably going to have to get some sort of minor surgery to have some some bone scraped out to make room. That's my guess. But that's a lot better than having some sort of fusing going on. So that's pretty insignificant, but it probably, I'm guessing that's going to be the case. We'll see because here we are, I don't know, 16, 18 weeks later at least, um, and I'm still having really sharp searing pain, which means some sort of nerve is involved where it's not supposed to be. Um, so we'll see what the doctor says, the neurosurgeon says, next week Tuesday. I think it's next week Tuesday, isn't it? I just want to give you all an update. That's where we're, where we're at at this point. It, I have this love-hate relationship with this brace. I hate it. I really hate it. But after not wearing it for about two hours or so, I'll put it on. It's like, ah, oh, and I love it <laughs> because it, it just takes all the pressure off my neck. So that it, it, it's weird. Then after about another hour of wearing it, I start hating it again. But for that hour, it's wonderful. <laughs> I loosen up a little bit so I can preach because it's really uncomfortable if I have it tightened all the way up. So, so it's down just a little bit right now. Anyway, we are in Acts chapter 14. More important stuff to talk about. <coughs> uh, we're going to look at the first seven verses of Acts chapter 14. Let's have a word of prayer before we jump in though. And then we can look at the text. Lord, help us as we look at this text this morning as we continue to walk our way through uh, th what is called the book of Acts, I pray that you will help us to hear your truth and remember, again, that these are not just historical records about the planting or beginning of the New Testament church. I pray that you will protect us from thinking that way. Help us instead to see within the history there are important things being communicated. And so, Lord, I pray you'll help us to learn from them but not merely learn lessons. I pray that the result will be we will be, we will be drawn into worship, reminding us of your worthiness and, and the value of your gospel. So open our hearts to see this. Help us to understand. In your name I pray. Amen. So we're still in the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas', Paul and Barnabas first missionary journey. They, um, they have moved on 
um, to Iconium from where they started out. And that's where we find them in chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. After we get done with 7, they will move into the next part of their first missionary journey. Starting in verse 1, however, follow along if you would. Now at Iconium... They entered together with the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of, of uh, Lyconia, sorry, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. What I'd like to, us to notice this morning as we look at the text is that we're going to see uh, a number of important statements in this text. It is obviously a historical record, isn't it? As I prayed that God protected us from merely seeing it as a historical record, we must at the same time acknowledge that it is a historical record. It's documenting the history of the working of the Holy Spirit as we've talked about from the get-go. It's not just the acts of the apostles, but it is the act of the Holy Spirit using the apostles and others to spread the gospel, planting churches in the early church throughout the ancient Near East. And so it's important that we, again, remember we're talking about the working of the Holy Spirit, not the working of the apostles. Does that make sense? The apostles are the tools. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What is Paul? What is Barnabas, right? Isn't that what he said? What is Paul? What is Barnabas? What is Apollos? One plants, one waters, but what? God gives the increase. In other words, this is the acts of God. God the Holy Spirit moving mightily among people. It's not about the great apostles. Everyone understand that? Very important. So we have Paul and Barnabas now arriving at Iconium, verse 1. What I would like to do this morning is I, I want to basically just go through this text and give you some observations along with some applications that we're going to get off of it. My wife and Tom have been after me about trying to, and the rest of the deacons have been after me about trying to keep it a little shorter uh, so that I don't struggle so much the rest of the day, if that makes sense. So, with that in mind, I'm going to give you some observations, some applications. Hopefully it primes the pump for you. You'll be able to move off it. We'll go over to worship and actually never move off of it. Continue to meditate on it. But you get the point. So some observations, applications, and we'll get off it. Here we go. Now it says again in verse 1, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. I just want to stop in verse 1 for just a second. I want you to notice it's not uncommon, but I want you to be reminded and observe this. Notice where they went. They went to the Jewish synagogue. And that's because at this point in time, even though they just said previously that it's now time for it to go to the Gentiles. It's now time for the Gospel to go to the Gentiles. This is still early enough that what they're doing is they're still going to the Jews first. Do you see that? 
But the other thing you can observe from this is do the apostles, does Paul and Barnabas already know that there is really strong opposition to the gospel among the Jewish ranks? They know that, don't they? It's been there. It's not new. It's been going on all along, hasn't it? But the opposition has not abated, has it? It has just increased and increased and increased. And yet, where do they go? They go to the place where the gospel is most hated, most despised, most rejected. Why do I pause on that application? I mean, I'm sorry, on that observation. I want to pause on that because of this. It is interesting, I find oftentimes in Christianity, here's application along with that observation. Oftentimes in Christianity, we don't talk to unbelievers about the gospel if we already know that they are opposed to it. We oftentimes avoid that if we know that we'll get kickback. Isn't that right? Isn't that how it often plays out? And we don't even realize that what we're doing is we are saying, without saying, we're saying the juice just isn't worth the squeeze. And I want to remind you of something. There is a theme throughout the New Testament. And it is really clear. And that is this. That everyone who is not saved hates the Gospel. Everyone who is not saved hates Jesus Christ. It's the theme of the New Testament, isn't it? Now, that hatred evidences itself in a variety of ways. In a little bit, we're going to find out it evidences itself that they want to do what? They want to stone him, the two of them. But that's not always the case, is it? In the New Testament, is that always the case? Hatred evidences itself by stoning? Or wanting to stone? No. Sometimes the evidence is just arguing a little bit. Isn't it? A little bit of arguing that's in opposition. That's the evidence that they hate the gospel and they hate Jesus. Because they love Jesus, they would love the gospel, and if loving Jesus, they love the gospel, they would do what? They would embrace both. And they would embrace those who are bringing the gospel to them, right? Opposition is inevitable. The scriptures are really clear. Jesus himself said it, didn't he? They hated me. Of course they're going to hate you. There it is. It is interesting, and first observation, Paul and Barnabas, do you sense any apprehension, any fear, any desire not to bring the gospel to those who hate the gospel? Quite to the contrary, that's where they always go. Every single time. The only exception, the absolute only exception, is when they're in the church and they're ministering to believers. And even then they're presenting the gospel knowing there's going to be people in that church that are going to what? Hate it. Even though they're proclaiming and, and, and saying they love the gospel and they love Jesus, in effect they oppose. So you find that even in the church. And yet Paul and Barnabas are still doing what? Proclaiming the gospel. Now, I, I, I point out this first observation because there's going to be a very strong connection with every observation we're going to present into this. So it says that they went to the Jewish synagogue and notice next in verse 1, observation number 2, and I'm going to very quickly forget which observation I'm on, so bear with me. 
and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jew, both Jews and, Gent, uh, Jews and Greeks believed. Which means when they arrived, firstly, it, in this observation, it means that when they arrived, they didn't believe, right? The believing is because of the gospel presented. We all know that. So there it is. But the, but the major observation in the second half of verse 1 of chapter 14 is this. It says in one, two, three, four, five short words, and spoke in such a way. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? They spoke in such a way that there was a result. And the result is that many Jews and Gentiles believed. Do you see that? Everybody see that? Okay. Now, it'd be very easy to look at this text, the end of verse 1, and, and speculate what it was or how, what their techniques were. Does that make sense? It'd be very easy to say, whoa, they spoke in such a way that people believed. There must be some sort of technique they used. Does that make sense so far? I mean, it'd be very easy. Can I just say this? There's a whole lot of people who do this. I mean, most of your evangelism seminars you go to today will talk about how to say the gospel in such a way that it is winsome, will influence people, and people will get saved. And this is one of those passages that, they, that they'll mention. Cherry-picking the passage. Let me change that. Cherry-picking the verse. Let me change it even again. Cherry-picking the phrase within the verse. And say there's a way to say the gospel. And we've got to be careful in the way we say it that it will be winsome and that, that people will be drawn to it. And I look at that and say, no, we must not speculate that. If all it said was verse 1, the end of verse 1, and we have no other data, then we must just leave it there. Because if all we had was the end of verse 1, we would have to say, okay, but God didn't tell us what that was. Correct? So therefore, since God didn't tell us what it was, then we what? We don't speculate. We don't go beyond. I mean, this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you get into foolish realms real quickly otherwise. But in this case, God did tell us what it was. Not in verse 1 He didn't. It says again, now in Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Period. No data except that it describes not how they spoke, but that they did in a certain way. But if you jump down to verse 3, you discover exactly what it was. In verse 3, Luke, or, yeah, Luke records, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Speaking boldly for the Lord. There's a number of, of, of ways you can understand this speaking boldly. And that, so I just want to lay it out for you, okay? First, let me say, when it says speaking boldly, if I may use a modern term, speaking boldly never was and never will be politically correct. If I may use a modern term. It never was and never will be politically correct. 
Speaking boldly means several things. Number one, it means speaking clearly. And that is, the subject at hand is spoken clearly. It is spoken forcefully. It is spoken strongly. It is spoken emphatically. It is spoken authoritatively. It is spoken exclusively. It is spoken in such a way that the hearer, accept it or reject it, will get what it means. Does that make sense so far? Let me add a few more. And these are built off of the exclusively statement. It means it rejects all other positions. It is, it, it is absolutely saying it's this, not that. Or to make it as obvious as possible, it is saying, as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. That's pretty bold. Isn't it? Isn't it? That's pretty bold. You know what Paul and Barnabas are saying then? The very first thing that Paul and Barnabas are saying when they get up and speak in such a way that a great many Greeks and, and, and Jews believed, the first thing they're getting up and saying is this. Ready? Ladies and gentlemen, we're just pretending like this is the church, the, the uh, big gathering in the synagogue at Lystra. Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm about to tell you, I need to establish right off the bat the way you're thinking, it's wrong. Do you realize that's how I spoke? The way you're thinking about God, it's wrong. The way you're thinking about eternal life, it's wrong. Oh, and Jews, the way you're thinking about the Old Testament, it's wrong. And by the way, any Jews here that know about Jesus, the way you're thinking about Jesus, you're wrong. Now, I'm using a conservation of language. But you realize that's what he said. I'm not saying those are the actual words that they said. But you realize wherever Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, John, Jesus, and anybody else you want to add in there, Anytime that it's recorded, their actual words, that's the kind of stuff they're saying. You do realize that, don't you? That's the kind of stuff they're starting off with. I mean, you read, you read the day of Pentecost, Peter's message, isn't that where he's at? He doesn't get to the gospel until after they start asking him questions. 
until after they start saying, what must I do to be saved? Up to that point in time, he's just saying, you're wrong. You're wrong. This is who Jesus is. That's, all, that's the two parts of the equation that they're presenting. You're wrong about Jesus. This is who Jesus is. You're wrong about the law. This is right about the law. Read Romans 1 through 3. <laughs> there it is, right? You're wrong about the law. Here's the truth about the law. When, it, when, when Paul goes up to the, the temple of Diana at Mars Hill, he says, let me tell you about the, your altar to the unknown God. The way you're thinking about it's all wrong because he's known. That's where he starts off, isn't it? You're wrong. Here's who he is. And um, every single time, it's emphatic, it's clear, it's crystallized, it's focused, it's this. And you know why Paul and Barnabas here spoke that way? And you know why Peter spoke that way? In Acts chapter 2? And you know why everywhere you read, that's why they all speak that way? You know why? Because there's an actual and absolute conviction by all of these writers and speakers of one thing. And that is this. Anybody who the Holy Spirit is not moving in and softening their hearts are going to hate the message. And anyone who the Spirit is moving in and softening their heart, you know what's going to happen? They're going to, by the Spirit, embrace the message. And in both categories, the Gospel and the Jesus of the Gospel must be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He must be. Today, People spend all their time, if they're evangelizing at all, trying to figure out how we can do what? Remove or minimize the offense of the gospel. And we don't even realize that all we're doing is trying to appease people when they ought not to be appeased. And all we're doing is trying to preserve the relationships we have when those relationships only exist for one purpose. And that's for the gospel. And so we approach everything all wrong. And then we wonder why almost nobody gets saved. <laughs> and we wonder why, why nobody's ever offended at me about the gospel. They can be offended about me about politics. They can be offended about me about masks and my view of masks. They could be offended with me with regard to my view about coronavirus. They could be offended with me about my view of fill-in-the-blank anything, my sports team, whatever. But I don't want anybody offended with me with regard to Jesus. I'm like, what? What? What's that all about? Observation. Verse 1. They spoke in such a way how? Simply stated, they spoke boldly. Forcefully. Aggressively. 
and all the rest we talked about. In my years of ministry before I became a pastor, and in my years of ministry since I've become a pastor, it's been interesting to me to observe how often people have been offended by my methodology of communication when I'm just trying to proclaim it clearly and plainly, and as accurately as I can. But it's always stunning to me how many people have been offended by it. I'm okay with that. But it's always been stunning to me how often people have been offended by that. And and I, I always ask the same question. Was what I said actually what the Scripture said? And you know what I get back? Every time it's always, well, yeah, but. Well, if it's yeah, then there's no but. <laughs> right? If there's, a, if there's a yeah, then there's no but. Is it accurate? And was it focused on redemption and drawing us to Jesus? Well, yeah, but. No. No, the minute we throw the butt in, we're saying, yeah, it was, but I don't want that. We just never use those kind of terms. Does that make sense? That's what we're saying. Interestingly enough, for Paul and Barnabas here, and other Scripture writers as well as speakers, they don't care about those butts. They don't care about those responses. They just say, here it is. Deal with it. Moving on, verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. That is, in verse 2, the unbelieving Jews, including who do you think? We have a pattern now, including who do you think? The leaders, yeah, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, all the rest of those, right? All those, those leaders... Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews did what? They didn't remain passive with regard to the clear declaration of the message, right? Did they? No, they didn't remain passive. Why not? Because they couldn't. The message was too out there. The message is spoken too bluntly, too clearly, too boldly. And so what happens? The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they're going after those who have not repented and believed. Does that make sense? They're identifying who is not a follower of Jesus at this point in time. And so they're going after them to try to corrupt them. And effectively so. They're keeping them from the truth. Verse 2. Verse 3. So they remain, that is, Paul and Barnabas, they do what? They remain for a long time. I love that. All sorts of opposition, and they do what? They stay there, and they do what while they're staying there? Continue to do what? Preach boldly, right? And you almost get the sense that the boldness kind of gets ratcheted up a few steps, don't you? They just say, oh, you guys can oppose us? Okay. They don't say, well, come on, guys, let's talk about this. Maybe, Maybe we can work through this. Do you hear the apostles saying that? Do you get any sense that that would be the case here? Do you get any sense at all? The apostles would say, hey, um, you Jewish leaders, how about we just sit down, get a cup of coffee together, and let's try to sort out how we can work this out. And hey, Come on, we're all humans. We can just, you know, we can agree to disagree, can't we? You hear that there? No! What you find is Paul and Barnabas like, they're just ratcheting it up. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, 
And then referring to the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So the, the Lord, not only is he empowering them to proclaim the truth, but what's happening? The Lord is causing various signs and wonders to take place, evidencing the truth of what they are preaching, right? Can I just pause this for a second? Because sometimes we, I hear people say, wow, wouldn't it be awesome if it happened today? You know, like Steve's up preaching, and as he's preaching a word, all of a sudden signs and wonders start taking place. Could I just submit something to you? It does still happen. It does. You know what the greatest miracle is? That people go from death to life. You know what the, great, the greatest miracle for believers is? They repent of their sin and fall in love deeper with Jesus and follow Jesus in a greater way and begin to proclaim boldly. He does not tell us what the signs and wonders are here, does he? He doesn't. Now we have some implications or some statements early on, much earlier on, that there are some signs and wonders of things like people being healed and things like that. It may be that here, but could I submit to you, it could also be that when Paul and Barnabas arrive, they're preaching, and some people are getting saved, and next thing you know, it's not just Paul and Barnabas preaching, but suddenly it's a bunch of people preaching. It's a bunch of people repenting. It's a, bench, a bunch of people being bold. <laughs> Do you realize that's a miracle? That's a, that's, that is a miracle that, that God transforms someone's heart. Do you realize that? That someone becomes bold about something they hated before. Can I just stop for a second and just ask you a quick question? Is it a sign and wonder that Saul going to Damascus suddenly is transformed and is preaching Christ and him crucified? Is that not a sign and wonder? He was going to kill and persecute and imprison Christians. And next thing you know, in the very town he was going to kill, crucify, and persecute Christians, he is in the synagogue preaching Christ and Him crucified and calling people to repentance to be Christians. <laughs> That's a sign and wonder, isn't it? I wonder if half the reason why we never see that or seldom see that is because most preaching of the gospel, whether it is corporate or whether it is personal, just person to person, isn't very bold. It's not very exclusive. It's not very, no, it's this, not that. But God's at work here, bearing witness to His work, word of grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Verse 4, But the people of the city were divided, some side with the Jews and some with the apostles. So there's obviously a dramatic division between people, which is not a bad thing. Jesus Christ said, I did not come to bring a, to, I'm sorry, to bring what? Peace, but to bring a sword. And then he said, and to cut right through families if necessary. Verse 5. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it, verse 6, and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. And we're going to wrap up with that one real quickly. Last observation. 
they're preaching boldly, they're there for a long time, and eventually those who hate the gospel begin to not just verbally hate and oppose and try to undermine, but eventually what happens? They're going to stone them. They put concrete plans, they're going to stone them. At that point in time, Paul and Barnabas do what? They get out of there, they flee there to say, well, we better lick our wounds, that wasn't worth it, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze there, I guess we better not do that anymore. Is that what they do? They just move to the next town. I mean, these people are going to show up later on and cause more problems with them. And what do they do? They just go to the next town. And they do what? Preach boldly. And we're going to see that in coming chapters. So for Paul and Barnabas, the juice was worth the squeeze or wasn't? It wasn't. It was. It absolutely was worth the squeeze. And remember, they're fleeing there. They're, they're, they're fleeing this town, these t- or, yeah, this town for the next town. They're going from Iconium to the next town. But what has happened in the meantime? Because they've been there for a long time. There's believers still there. It doesn't say that they, all the believers left, does it? Persecution has now risen in that town. And you know if they hated Paul and Barnabas, they hated them because of the message, and these other people being transformed are going to what? They're going to preach, which means what? Some of them are most likely going to get persecuted and stoned. Well, Paul and Barnabas move on. Why? Well, do they move on just because they love their skin so much? No, they moved on because they're on a missionary journey to preach the gospel. <laughs> That's why. It wasn't about, well, the juice isn't worth the squeeze now anymore. Cost is too high. We're not going to stick around here. We know that's not the case because how many times does Paul get beat? How many times does he get stoned? How many times does he get thrown in prison? Right? He gets shipwrecked and eventually he's killed for it all. Clearly, it's not an issue of, oh my goodness, I don't want to get stoned. Is it? No. But he's on a missionary journey. So he moves on. His work was accomplished. He's moving on to the next town to do what? Proclaim the gospel boldly and plant churches. You get the sense of what's going on here? What's going on here is Paul and Barnabas are controlled by the Spirit because they're enthralled with Jesus, also caused by the Holy Spirit. And so they arrive, and the evidence that they're caught up with Jesus by the Holy Spirit is they're doing what? Operative word. Two words. Proclaiming boldly. Can I just submit to you, proclaiming boldly is one of the basic tests of if you love Jesus or not. It's not just here. You'll find that throughout the New Testament. What does Jesus say? What does Paul say? Because I know the fear of God, I persuade men. And then he also says two verses before, I believe it is, the love of Christ controls me. And this is what controlling Paul looks like. We know that because although this is early in Paul's ministry, first missionary journey, it doesn't change in the second missionary journey, does it? It doesn't change when he confronts Peter in between the first and second missionary journey, does it? And it doesn't change on his third missionary journey, does it? 
And it doesn't change when he's in prison, does it? And it doesn't change when he goes to Rome, does it? No. If anything, it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. Doesn't it? It's, it's, like, it's like the basic understanding of what it means to love Jesus is I'm caught up with him and I just can't help but boldly proclaim. Unabashedly, unashamedly, boldly proclaim. And that's the observation and application from the text. Are we people who find ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit? Please don't miss my point. I am not in any way trying to communicate to us, and I hope you know this by now, that, hey, everybody, listen, this week, we got to get out and boldly proclaim. I mean, come on. Paul did it. Barnabas did it. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? Come on, we need to get out and do it. That's not the point. It is a descriptive, not prescriptive passage. The point is, this is descriptively describing what happens when. So we look at the text, and we look at ourselves, and we say, well, I know that that is the the major theme throughout the New Testament. If that's not me, something's wrong. That That should be the thought process. If I read this, and be careful we don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, but, you know, I'm, uh, I'm kind of shy, unlike Paul. Don't fall into that trap. The Spirit's bigger than our shyness, for example. So if, if I read this and I say, that's not me, the question should immediately come up and say, why not? Why not? And then the follow-up of that should not be, I guess I better try harder. No. The, the thing that should come after that is what? A prayer that says, God, open my heart, open my eyes to see what I am bold about. What I am captivated by. Draw me to repent of that. So that... I'm caught up with you because I know when I'm caught up with you, this will be me too. I know it will. When I'm enthralled with you, this will be me too. And it is a biblical me too movement, if I may close with that. Let's pray. Lord, help us. It is easy. It is way too easy for us to think we're doing well when it's not by any biblical standard, but it's some sort of perceived standard. Lord, I pray that you will help us, that we will clearly, by your Spirit, be able to see ourselves and examine ourselves. What are we enthralled with? What are we moved by? What are we controlled by? As Rusty was talking about in the confession this morning. Draw us to repentance. Draw us back to the fountain of living water.
draw us back to the to the bread of life. And as Proverbs 9 says, help us to feast and be full of you and with you. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.